1: Hi, I'm Melanie Richards, and I'm the former deputy chair of KPMG in the UK, and now sit on the board of Morgan Stanley International as a non-executive. I'm also uh, chair and on the boards of uh, the Eve Appeal, the National Theatre, and the Invictus Games that all give me great pleasure. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the Inspirational Leadership podcast series, And I'm and I'm going to hand over to my host now, Jonathan Bowman-Perks.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Melanie. And uh, you and I were on BBC Radio 4 together with Gavin Patterson, who's now, I think, uh, right up there at Salesforce, doing very well as one of the, the people running the business. Uh, and it was called The Bottom Line. And we had such fun because I, I'd never done it before, and I haven't done it since, but we were all there in the BBC, the three of us sitting together, and they sort of bounced questions between the three of us. I really enjoyed that. And we stayed in touch, and I saw you in KPMG, And congratulations for for what you did there, because of course, for that and your contribution to business and and to the diversity and inclusion agenda, you were awarded the CBE, which is uh, something I'd like to talk about later on, but but congratulations on that. So tell us a bit about what you're doing in your sort of portfolio career at the moment. Uh, You've touched on them very briefly, and then we'll go back to your earlier life uh, and what shaped you as the successful leader you are today.
1: Thank you, Jonathan, and thanks very much for inviting me. Um, So I I guess uh, I'm at an early stage in my next chapter, so we'll talk about my earlier career. But uh, I stepped down from KPMG in September 20, long planned, uh, and spent some time um, doing some corporate finance advisory work uh, since then, uh, selling a business, actually um but uh, in earnest really started my non-executive career back in the spring so we're only sort of six months in so you catch me very early and uh, I joined the board of Morgan Stanley International which is a little bit like going back to my roots because I spent some time in investment banking in my career um and uh, I've also joined the boards um of a number of charities uh, the first uh, I'm chairing which is the Eve Appeal which is a charity that um, raises awareness and raises uh, funds research into the early detection and prediction of women's kind gyne- of gynecological cancers, which are a very poorly explored area. And I could talk about forever, but I won't. Um, I've joined the board of the Invictus Games, uh, which you know that uh, in the spring we're expecting. Well, we're anticipating uh, the games at the hague which uh, is is a very exciting thing to be getting involved in now and obviously a very worthy thing to be doing
0: and i'm sure people ask you you know have you met harry you know if, if you're involved in the victors game have you have you met either of the princes
1: well given that we're all doing everything virtually the short answer is no because no. i i've only joined in the last few months but of course i will do uh, yeah. um very shortly and then last but certainly not least uh I've joined the board of the National Theatre and I think I was saying to you that um, I um when I received the call inviting me to join that board it was a sort of you had me at hello moment I didn't you know I didn't even have to think about whether I was interested um theatre's been a part of my life for uh, since childhood my, my dad was a um, he was a lawyer but he was also a musician and a very accomplished musical director uh, of a theatre company and so um, it was sort of coming full circle and it's funny how these things happen and of course I'm I'm enjoying that enormously. Yeah. Um, I'm also doing some coaching um, really? and I've joined as an advisory partner Manchester Square Partners and, and I'm starting to work with um, some entrepreneurs and some businesses that are at, at early stage as well as uh, pursuing other non-exec opportunities so quite a lot going on.
0: Yeah there is and and fantastic you talked about your father let's let's take us back to uh, childhood with your parents and you know to be the leader you are today with all the experience you have and all these different organizations you're helping and you're advising other people as well um, what shaped you as you were, as you were growing up who shaped you?
1: Well um, so I suppose where would I start? And I'd start with sort of describing a little bit about who my mum and who my dad are, because I, you know they they're obviously both huge, huge, huge influences in my life. And I mean, they had a pretty rocky start to their um, early married life uh, because my dad uh, was Jewish, um, and my mum, who is still with us, is a Catholic. And uh, as you might imagine, getting married in the fifties um that was sort of considered quite racy at the time and and very difficult for both sets of families Mm. um but but actually what it meant was that um my parents sort of brought us up in an environment of huge i guess tolerance and um willingness to and you know we had all sorts of i guess because of the theater aspects of my dad's life and my, my mother was involved too you know we had Lot, a lot of difference, if I can put it that way, walking through our front door, but we never noticed it because that was how we were brought up. And um, and and that that has had a huge impact, I think, in, in terms of of how I feel about people. Mm. Um, the other thing I'd say is that um, uh, my parents were both very generous and kind people and um, And and I think those are things that I've taken into kind of I'd like to think into my everyday life um, as I've thought about. And maybe not as consciously as, you know, it's one of those things you and I were talking about, uh, you know, when we've talked about when we were on that podcast, you know, the podcast, when we did it together. You know, it's not until somebody starts asking you questions that you start to reflect on why you've ended up being the person that you are. And, and I, I would absolutely put the generosity and kindness that I feel are important things for me as things that my parents definitely instilled in me.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and all the different uh, business experiences you've had from when you left school. Just, just touch on a few of the, of the journeys so we can sort of see the, the, the stepping stones that you took.
1: So so I suppose one of the, one of the things that um, most surprises people about me is I didn't go to university and um, I'll tell you a very brief story and you could stop me if I'm banging on, but I'm Welsh. The other thing I forgot to mention is I'm Welsh and a very proud Welsh woman. Um, My parents aren't Welsh, they're both sort of imported and there's a whole background to them, but, but that means that it makes my it's the one identity that I hold on to is my Welshness and and if you know the Welsh you know that we're passionate about rugby and yep. it, and you also know that that um you know anybody can go to a rugby match and and be welcomed and it's probably one of the friendliest places to go anyway mm-hmm. I was at a rugby match age 17 and uh, I was in a bar probably shouldn't have been and um And I I met two guys who were from um, NatWest doing recruitment. And one of them was a student graduate recruiter. I don't think they were meant to be recruiting in a bar, but this sort of (laughs) thing. And um, uh, one was a graduate recruiter and the other was a school leaver recruiter. And uh, and this was back in the eighties. And you'll remember we had the miners' strikes and economically in the UK, everything was a bit dire and people were coming out of university and not getting jobs with great degrees. And so I chatted to these two about my dilemma. I wasn't, you know, there was nothing I passionately felt I wanted to study at university. Um, And one was sort of highly encouraging of me going into university and then coming into a banking career and the other was saying, well, why don't you just get on with it now? Anyway, um, without a single thought for my own personal safety, I um, shared all of my personal details. And um, and it was in the days before mobile phones and emails. And 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 onto my you know mat plopped at home a letter from them with a big bundle of papers, with application forms, uh, with a very nice letter which I wish I'd kept. Um, I'm not very sentimental about things, and I I'm not a hoarder, so I haven't got it. But. Um, uh, the letter essentially said it was lovely to meet you and, and I'm sure you're doing very well, but here are the options and, and here are the forms. And I filled in the form and I went for an interview and I got a job without telling my parents and then <laughs> announced it. And um it went down really badly. Um <laughs> and Um and uh and and I don't think he actually forgave me till I was probably in about my mid mid-30s and seemed to be doing okay. Um <laughs> And so that was the start. And I joined NatWest as a graduate leaver. And don't worry, I'm going to fast forward now. And I spent, so broadly, I spent half my career in banking, uh, about 18 years um, in banking. And then I spent the remainder at at KPMG. Um, And uh, in banking, I did investment banking, corporate finance type work, advising companies on the raising of capital and debt and funding acquisitions and so forth. And then I sort of became poacher turn gamekeeper. KPMG decided that they wanted to, and a former colleague was setting up a debt advisory business inside KPMG, uh, and um, I was sort of, you know, there was a, uh, there was there were three of us at the beginning, and now there's a much larger team of people uh, that were built there that are advising companies on raising finance. And then in the sort of last eight, nine years of my career at KPMG, um, I variously sat on the board uh, and then ultimately became deputy chair of the firm in the UK.
0: Yeah. And you had to stand in for the chair when he poor fellow got uh, COVID, I understand.
1: I I did. Yes. I mean, I as I described to you, I, I had a very I had very much this was probably the uh, the first time in my career that I had a plan and we'll come probably come back to that but in September 19 I'd decided that I wanted to move into a new chapter and uh, was planning to sort of wind down during 2020 and then very unfortunately the chair got COVID and um, the rest as they say is history and I spent most of uh, 2020 winding up into uh, running a, a large multidisciplinary
0: firm. Wow, yeah, a lot of experience. I think it was General von Molk uh, who was involved in the First World War and the Schlieffen Plan said, no plan survives the first meeting with the enemy, but whether it's not the enemy, but you know, you can, I think it was Eisenhower said, you know, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And uh, uh, he had he had two letters that he'd written. One was to apologize if D-Day was an utter failure and it was all his own fault. And the other one if it was success to give all the credit to his commanders that worked for him which i thought was a lovely way of, of doing it. which letter does he does he you know does he send uh and he written he'd written both of them in the days when letters uh needed to be written as you found landing on your doormat from nat west um wonderful story thank you for that Melanie and then um proudest moments and darkest moments in your life and, and what you learned from each of them because I, I know you're someone who does reflect on the learning of everything that's happened to you what would you share on those two
1: well i th- i think it, it it it's all you know that there, there there are many proud moments mainly i've taken pleasure in in the success of others actually rather than pride in myself but i think it would be remiss of me in some ways you kindly mentioned that i'd been awarded a cbe and um and and you know it, it was a really quite moving thing to be offered really and um when I received the letter from the cabinet office and you know I go to events at number 10 so from time to time invitations had to directly come to the house so uh, when I opened that letter I I actually had to read it three times because I thought somebody I was being asked to do something for somebody else and which sounds really stupid when I look back on it um but um yeah no I feel huge pride in 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 being recognized in that way and um and hugely humbled. And I know people use that word and and you know it's a bit hackneyed, but I genuinely, you know, you know, knowing what others were doing, I mean, I, I remember when I actually went to get the award, and you know, you're standing in a room with other people who have done some incredible things. There was a woman who'd worked in the health service during the pandemic, you know, this is pre-pandemic, but with older, the older generation. And um, had done some, inc- made huge impact in her area. Um, and, and I sort of, when you're standing amongst people like that, it makes you feel even more humble about why you've been given it and what you've achieved. But yeah, that's probably my proudest moment.
0: Yeah, and just staying with that one, it, it is so interesting, um, the arrangements at the palace when, when you go. And, and I was struck, um, so Steve Redgrave was getting his, and then there was, as you say, so many people, so thoroughly deserving of it and you sort of think who am i compared to these people i was really struck by the queen because she had no earpiece and she had the other people getting their awards before me and then i went forward in my uniform and stood there and and got my uh, my mbe but she knew about me she knew what i'd done where i'd been she had no notes to read And yet she had a great conversation with me for my minute that I had, and then did that wonderful shake and then just gently pushes your hand away, which means it's time for you to go, rather than the people who cling on to her and won't let go. Um, But I just was struck by that, both her presence and also um, uh, Lady Diana and and her presence. Certain, uh, and these are two two very powerful women like you, they, they have presence what do you think it is what is it that ingredient about presence what is it sorry what was the last question? what what do you think the ingredient that makes presence in somebody
1: well do you know one One of the things I it took me a, a time to learn I think was that um, stillness mm. is, is one of those things and um, you know I'm I'm quite a kind of an outgoing person and I, I don't I don't I'm not suggesting that I quashed my outgoing the outgoing bit of me, the expressive bit of me. But I think that um and, and I and I certainly wouldn't put myself up there with the queen. I'm still learning, right? Um, but but I do think that there is something about stillness and listening and attentiveness that um that you that you don't necessarily have, you know that that you can learn that you can learn how to listen more attentively, and you know we all have our moments where we're not listening as closely as we should. But um, but I, but I, I I do think that that to be interesting you need to be interested.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, uh, uh, that's a lovely bits of advice. I've, I've written that down: stillness, listening, attentiveness and to be interested in them. If like, if you want to have a friend, you've got to be a friend. If you want to be trusted, you have to trust others. Um, I I think that's very profound and and clear. So uh, you were about to touch on some of the darkest moments or pick one out from among what I'm sure you have uh, a number of experiences. What would you talk about darkest moments and what you learned about yourself as a leader? So,
1: so, I think that, uh, you know, there, there are very, there are very many dark, I mean, if anybody thinks that, you know, you reach the age, the grand old age, as I am at 57, and that you, you that there haven't been a lot of dark moments, then, uh, and I don't want to make it sound like my life has been dark, but, um, you know, some of them are obviously deeply personal and probably not appropriate necessarily to share, but um, my, my father was a huge um influence on me and um he sadly died last year and I'm not going to talk about that but actually he he had um a couple of strokes which took away his ability to play the piano which was a huge part of his life and a huge part of our family if you like and um and actually uh and I'm getting slightly emotional now because you're making me talk about it. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's um, what what did it teach me? Um, and this this happened. He lived with you know the inability to play the piano for another decade. So this isn't something that happened. And and just you know, I was very sad when I lost him last year. But I felt even sadder when he stopped being him, if I can put it that way. And so I'm sure this this is something others have experienced but it it really makes you realize that you know i like to think that i live for today and and i live for what what can be done today but but actually how quickly how how fleeting how fleetingly you know between one day and the next something you know life can be very very different
2: mm.
1: and so i i think you know I'm not sure it was a dark moment. I think it was a dark time when it it made me much more self-reflective and much more um, considered about what impact I want to have.
0: Mm. That that is very profound for me in what you've just said. And funny enough, I I have a, a habit stack of positive things I do in my morning. So this morning, you know, got up, listened to The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, um, which I'll come back to. but then there's certain activities I do in the morning, which includes hit training in the garage and then a walk with the dog with my wife. Um, and then I start the day, but I, I've already built up good mental health by the the positive activities, but uh, writing a gratitude journal as well, the uh, five minute journal which I find invaluable. But today's today's daily Stoic was all about death and the Stoics, Said you need to prepare for death. It's 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 the only thing that's certain in life. You used to say death and taxes, but now, as you know, having been at KPMG, there's some very wealthy people who've managed to cleverly avoid taxes, and Trump is out there among them all. Um, so it's just death, the, the, the one certainty in life. And 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 it was this thing about preparing for it. And you know, everybody said live today as if it's your last, but it's it's a trite kind of comment. But I think your experience and and mine is is very similar in that you know we had my mother-in-law who was we were caring for for three years and we saw her deteriorate with alzheimer's coming on and, and heart disease lung disease and cancer and again like your father she loved her piano playing but it became harder and harder for her and the alzheimer's made her forget things but there were special moments when i walked in and she was on her own she'd only normally play the piano in our room when she thought we were all out and i come back from dog walk And and she was playing music Mm. that she didn't have the notes that she didn't have any of the music there. It came from somewhere that music she hadn't played for years, that it came back to her. So it's really quite bittersweet as you see people losing their mind with Alzheimer's, which is so common for so many and linked to what we eat and a whole range of other things which have an impact on us. But I, I, I really related to you with that tenderness over your father and his love of music but that the piano playing had gone mm. yeah thank you wow well let's cheer ourselves up a little and talk yes. about <laughs> and not get too too somber. talk about um all that you've learned now and and you've you've been involved in kpnt and elsewhere in bringing on the next generation of, and you're very interested in leadership development diversity of people and drawing them on what bit of advice would you give to your younger self if you met Melanie when you were 16, which is also relevant for other young people who are starting out, uh, maybe they're not in a pub meeting a, uh, a talent scout but but w- what bit of advice to do this but don't worry about that what what would be your advice to yourself which might be relevant to others.
1: So. Um... I know sometimes a lot of people say, oh, I would have said yes more. Um, I don't don't think anybody would accuse me of not saying yes enough. But I do think um, that I would have probably been, uh, I'd have taken a bit more risk. I I think that there have been, and don't get me wrong, it's not that I've taken no risk, clearly. But I, I just think that there are moments where I've hesitated when I should have just leapt in to something and um uh and look I I don't regret I mean you'll have heard the way I describe my career I I haven't actually worked for lots and lots of different organizations I mean in a 40-year career I've worked for three organizations really uh which is you know unheard of almost today um and I think you know the environment's different uh, in many ways. And, and it also depends on the size of organization you're in, if you think about it in those terms and and the opportunities that present themselves. But, but I would, I, I think I would have encouraged myself to take a bit more risk. Um, I think, uh, I would have listened more earlier. So, um, I'm a much more, and I think it depends on your personality, but I'm a much more conscious listener now and that suggests that I didn't listen at all, which, which I would hate to give you that impression. But I think, you know, when you're an enthusiast, and you kind of have a, you're driven, and you have a kind of a mission, which, you know, I I often, I suppose, feel like I've had, sometimes it's easy to forget to listen enough. Uh, and so I, I think if, if if I'd, I'd I'd have been a I'd have learned to listen better earlier. If that mm. makes
0: sense. No, it makes a, a huge amount of sense, and I I relate to that. It, it's 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 almost like you have to relearn it every day mm. to 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 ground yourself, and it's not about you; it's about them. And and rather than learning nothing new because you're just hearing coming out of your mouth what you already know, to to really give people strategic time to think and. I yeah, think we may have discussed before. I'm a great fan of Nancy Klein's work and her latest book, "The, um, um, the Promise," that mm-hmm. changes everything. I won't interrupt you, and, and I think to listen and not interrupt is a real is a real skill, particularly when you're a, um, a a host of a of a podcast where you you still want to get people to speak but but not cut them up. Let's go round um, next the Inspiring Leadership Compass. That that it's was just a, a model that my wife Lee and I. Um, found over the years from our experience in interviewing people seem to have some resonance about what creates high-performing leaders and teams. And you certainly have spent your time looking at helping people to be like that. And that's the work you've done. If you think in your 50% of your career was in KPMG, you say you didn't work for many different organizations, but in many ways, you worked for advising so many different organizations. You didn't have to leave the home base but you got the chance to work in all these different organizations, and if you'd liked any of them more, you'd probably, like me, in Price Waterhouse Coopers, would have gone. Well, actually, I've got headhunted by one of them to go and to go and work somewhere else. Uh, I love my time in in, in PwC, but um, uh, I, I also enjoy being a managing director. Um, so, so thinking about the first of uh, the eight sort of principles is moral questions. You know, your values, your principles, your integrity, what you will do. And what you won't do. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said a lady or a gentleman is someone who knows what they will do as well as what they won't do. So what are your top three principles or values that you live by and and why are they important to you?
1: Well I I touched on them at the top of this conversation and I think kindness is grossly underrated Mm -hmm. and particularly I think actually during the pandemic we've seen a lot of discussion around the power and value of kindness. And, and sometimes I think kindness is wrapped, it, it put in this wrapper that it's somehow a bad thing because if you're a leader, you should be decisive and forceful and pushing forward and so forth. But I see kindness in in very many different ways. And, and, and I guess the way which I think about kindness is sometimes delivering difficult messages to people is the kindest thing you can do. Mm-hmm but the most difficult thing to do so thinking that being kind is easy mm. it is actually quite a flawed concept but I, I think you know if, if I were to, to 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 think about the sort of I'm going to use three words there are many words but kindness would be one gratitude would be another mm. um and thankfulness and 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 I, I don't know I have a big thing, I notice when people don't thank people. I notice when people don't, uh, you 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 were talking about um, Eisenhower and, and the letters that he drafted. You know, in truth, um, we should be grateful to the people around us. The, the only reason that we have the, the uh, privilege of be, being leaders is because we have great people around us. And to forget to to even thank them or put at the core the question of of how we show people that we appreciate them. But again, you know, I also think there's a there's a more difficult side to that, which is you know being honest with people when 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 things aren't right. Yeah. And then the the other one. Well, actually, I'm going to have two more. Is that okay?
2: Of course. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, I, I I limited myself to three, and then instantly thought of a fourth. So. Um, uh the other would be courage Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um and I sort of touched on that uh when you asked me what advice would I give and and I mentioned risk taking and and I think that um it it it, let's not confuse courage with um having a singular point of view Mm. but having the courage to take different points of view but But, you know, at the end of the day, decisions have to be made and, you know, the the buck stops with the leader ultimately.
0: Mm, mm. So I
1: think courage is important. And your fourth? Forgiveness.
0: Forgiveness. Yeah. Say about that.
1: So um, I, I think my younger self would have said the world is a quite black and white place. There's right and there's wrong. And what I've discovered And I think the beauty of age is you discover quite how much gray there is, which doesn't mean that, you know, there is, there isn't a right and a wrong way. I'm not, I don't want people to think that I, I don't believe that there is right and wrong, but I also believe that, you know, the things that, that you do at one point in time or decisions that you make may not be appropriate at another point in time. And I think, I think, forgiving people for not getting things quite right is quite an important quality, Mm. Uh, but understanding, but, but also no, but from that we all have to learn. So, so it isn't just forgiveness. Oh, well, let's forgive everybody. It's forgiveness in circumstances where uh, we, we can see somebody has learned from the experience and, and how on earth are people going to learn and take risks if they can't be forgiven?
0: Yeah, I I so agree. And and, uh, the the previous podcast was with um, Daniel Bernard, who's in Israel. He's a very successful investor and and, uh, entrepreneur, uh, particularly in the sports field. But he said as he grew up, similar time, um, he was quite arrogant uh, in his own term that he believed that everything was wrong and he was constantly pointing out where things were wrong and, and this should be done and that should be done. And I remember as a young officer in the army, I was convinced that the generals were all incompetent and I knew much better about how to run the British army at the age of 24 as a uh, as a young lieutenant or a captain I mean of course course I did you know (laughs) I was but but he said that one of the shop one of the uh, stewards uh, working in the factory he was in said you know there is no perfect world we don't live in a perfect world just get over it and Mm. I think this sort of of acceptance not that lower standards but just accept the way things are and i think our health gets affected because this is how things are but this is how we want them to be and they're not the same and and we often rail against it and sometimes people make themselves mentally ill because they can't make the transition between what is and what they hope it'll be so i think you raise a very good point thank you for those those four kindness gratitude courage and forgiveness moving on nicely to the next one pq meaning and purpose you know dharma calling vocation Melanie, you know, in what you've done and what you continue to do, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Why do you do the work you do?
1: I just like helping people. Mm. I, I, and I, I use the word people, but, I, you know, you talked about, you know, my, my advisory career, and you're right. You know, I work with lots of different companies, lots of different personalities, lots of different people. Um, and, in fact, you know, I spent uh, the financial crisis helping to restructure businesses Mm. which isn't much fun sometimes right you know it's tricky it's difficult difficult decisions have to be made but at at the core you know I always believed I was there to help others and support help and support others and so and, and again you know these are concepts that that sometimes are associated with softness and weakness and you know, um, but but actually, for me, you know, they give me great joy. Apart from anything else, but also um, sometimes helping others requires doing difficult things. Yeah. You know, I I um I always remember a, I was speaking at an event um, um in Birmingham at the University of Birmingham, and, and they'd invited me to speak about uh, culture and values and um and what i had not you know this this is a lesson another lesson be sure you know who your audience is going to be and um they it was an open invitation so people from the public could come etc and it was in a lecture theater and anyway there was this guy who'd arrived he was poor hearing uh the induction loop wasn't working and so I'd approached him and said look you know how can I help and he said well I can I said can you lip read and I said okay well normally I wander around for and talk all over the place but I'll try and talk at you and so I thought I had a friend in the room (laughs) let's put it this way (laughs) very grateful etc anyway Q&A comes his hand shoots up you know I think, oh, my friend, oh, I'll start with him.
2: <laughs>
1: His question was, you know, how can you sleep at night when wow. you've been involved in restructuring so many businesses and have been, he pretty much said, personally responsible for, you know, huge numbers of job losses in the UK, Ewan, et and, and And, you know, it was the, the reason the question was easy to answer was because I knew what my purpose was and my response to that was yes i have had to help companies make some very difficult decisions and choices that have not necessarily resulted in great outcomes for everybody but what i do know is that 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 there are in order to save some but not all we had to make difficult decisions and 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 you know you may not see it but i know and I know in my heart that I was helping a group of individuals and those individuals I know all have families and, you know, personal situations, et cetera, that I never lost sight of, never lost sight of, but, but y- y- you have to keep in perspective the totality of what was trying to be achieved.
0: That, that is so interesting and resonates in a personal way in a family story that uh, my grandfather uh, and his brother, Ran mills, um, uh, woolen mills in, in Calderdale in, in Yorkshire. And they were Quakers uh, and therefore they looked after the education and the health of their, of their employees and they, often where they provided housing. But in the, the First World War and the Second World War, uh, and they also did some, uh, they brought some cotton in from abroad, which they also uh, used on the mills. Um, but things got so tight that their advisors in your, in your shoes were saying, look, you have to lay off some stuff, you have to restructure. And they wouldn't do it. Mm. Because they, no, 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 we look after everybody, we care for them all. And of course, the whole lot went down, it, 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 they went into liquidation, they, mm-hmm. they, they lost almost everything. My, you know, a uh, generation was very wealthy, the next generation was completely impoverished, because they lost everything, the mill closed down, it's now a nightclub in Halifax or pronounced as we pronounced it, Halifax. Come all L or Halifax, the good Lord deliver us because both cities had gibbets hanging people for for crimes that they did. But it was the point where they, they went to extremists, that they cared so much that they destroyed themselves. So sometimes some tough calls have to be made. So I think you make a really good point there, Manny. Thank you. Let's move on to health quotient. Um, in a job like yours and all the pressures that you have as Deputy Chair of KPMG and all the decisions that made, and particularly when you're dealing with really what is actually quite toxic times. I, I know some of the CEOs I've been with uh, involved in restructuring and mergers and acquisitions got so physically ill because of the cortisol and the adrenaline all the time. What have you done? You look in great health. Uh, what have you done to keep yourself mentally and physically healthy? If there were a couple of tips that you give,
1: so. Um... Uh, the first is you know coming back to the things you learn I, I didn't look after myself for a period of time um uh and and now I do it, I can see the huge difference and and it's probably I guess I've been exercising more like you know very regularly not like the once a week like almost every day doing something <laughs> um, for about the last 10-12 years and um, and and it was it was sort of a push came to shove thing, and I and, and so I wish I'd come to it sooner, if I can put it that way. So, you know, you were talking about doing hip training first thing in the morning. I do some of that, and uh, I do a lot of Pilates. Um, I used to run, uh, but now my knees don't like it. Um, and you know, the the, the physical. I, the biggest thing for me is if, if, you know, you ask for younger advice for young, you know, if to my younger self, I wish I'd exercise more. And of course, one of the challenges was that I had young children. So I've got two boys. And, um, and I think I didn't allow myself enough space that for, to look after me, if I can put it that way. So, you know, there was the work, there was the kids, um, and, um, And what I realized was that actually the invest that the investment in time of reading a book or reading the FT it's actually all it's as important to invest in making, even if it's 20 minutes or half an hour to physically do something, whether it's go for a walk or whatever else has been hugely important.
0: Yeah. and, And building on that, I've just been reading. I'm dyslexic, so I probably read about, listened to rather than read, but it's my version of reading. About 200 audiobooks in the last three years. I've just become almost obsessive. My my wife sort of teases me at the time because I want to learn to have the knowledge to, to share with others. And I particularly had a bout of about 30 books on health and well being, the microbiome, and one of the things that uh, struck me in a book I read recently, uh, food. WTF should I eat? <laughs> Um, What the heck should I eat? Perhaps we should say that uh, Mm -hmm. by Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, which is very interesting, and I commend it to you and others listening, is that he said, you know, one of the is is, uh, care for the uh, the liver and feed the gut, Um, but that you can't exercise your way out of a, a bad diet of sugar, carbohydrates and refined flour. You know, you just you can't exercise however much you do if you if you if you if you're a sugar junkie and you have lots of the white death, you, you're not going to be well. And, and I just wondered what what you've done also to, to look after not only yours, but you've got two boys and your husband, you, your diet for everybody. What's been your experience over the, the years?
1: Well, um, again, not a great role model on that front, um, because I'm I'm I, I, I'm I'm a sugar junkie who has to keep it under control and um so uh you know i go through patches of of uh so so the good news for those on this uh on this podcast listening to this podcast is uh you've now you've now hit upon my you know absolutely you know worst part about me is i would eat loads of sugar and anybody who knows me knows i love a bag of haribo um, which uh sorry no advertising of course
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and so um but uh you know I have to very very consciously contain it mm. absolutely consciously contain it um luckily for me I don't do the cooking my husband does all the cooking thank god because he's a really good cook um and I'd like to think we are pretty healthy eaters aside from the sugar thing um you know, I don't. I, I do watch how much carbohydrate I'm eating, and I do watch um, that I'm getting fish and meat and all the protein and all of those other things. Hmm. But I don't have a kind of magic kind of uh, formula, so to speak. Yeah. Well, um, but I do do fasting.
0: Yes, I, I'm um, an intermittent faster. What? How many yeah. hours fasting and how many hours eating?
1: So I try and I try most days not to eat for twelve hours. Um, so you know, sometimes I get up to 16. I try and do a couple of days where it's sort of closer to 16. Um the thing that I find that that I find that 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 was helpful for was because I was doing a lot of breakfast, lunches, and dinners, mm. you know, meeting people. You know, that was part part of my job was to meet clients and people and very often it involved food and, and entertainment.
2: Yeah.
1: Um uh, I hasten to add very you know I uh, I one thing I don't have a particular issue with is drinking I don't think because don't get me wrong I like a drink but I'm very capable of not drinking for days on end uh, you know it's one of those things that if it's if it's it, with a meal fine if if not then I you know I, it's neither here nor there and and, and I, I think also helped by the fact that my husband doesn't drink uh, yeah. now he's not been drinking for 12 years so we don't drink at home and so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think alcohol can be quite damaging in the sense yeah. of, you know, the kind of the thing to go to and everybody has a relationship with alcohol that's different, but yeah, yeah, I try and, that- and, I try and for those who have seen me with more than one glass in me, you will know that I do like a drink, but um, I, I, I can have, as I say, I think being capable of not having something for days on end is quite a good discipline.
0: It certainly is. And, and I've joined you with that, I, you know, brought up in the army where, you know, I remember at 16, you know, they tried the Duke of Wellington's regiment tried to force sort of five or six pints of beer down me, you know. And I just I just thought, really, is this what the machismo is? And these guys, these huge beer bellies. And so that's what I aspire. I don't, I don't aspire to be like that. So, yeah, I, I occasionally do like a, a drink, but I can happily go without it. And my late brother, David, and my brother, Graham, have both given up completely. Um, and and I I am pleased you talk about the intermittent fasting or what they call time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating because I've, again, researched a lot around this and the circadian rhythm, and um, my wife and I, Lee and I, now do 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating, and the reason I've gone, if we're on holiday and you've got to have a breakfast in the hotel, I do the 12-12 like you, but uh, I do know that, that generally most of the year I'm 16 hours of fasting because in hours... 12 to 14, you get the ketosis, which feeds the the brain with burning up certain uh fats, which is very good. And I I find my brain super clear in that stage of hours uh 12 to to 14. But then 14 to 16, which is so important after David's death of cancer, is is that's when you're breaking up the cancer cells and generating new cells. So anything you can do from 12 to uh 12 to 16 hours is is really 14 to 16 hours. It's really Mm -hmm. beneficial. Um, so thank you for that. Um, uh, on to quickly fire through a few on EQ, CQ, RQ, BQ, and LQ. Let's go for EQ. What's what's your top tip for um, good emotional intelligence?
1: Well, you got it. That, 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 that it's got to be listening. Hmm. And and you know I think um, I think I think you know emotional intelligence is described as being able to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, right? Broadly. I mean, I'm sure you've got a better definition, Jonathan, but, um, I, I, um, I spend a, not an over when I have conversations with people, particularly conversations where, um, I'm not sure where they're coming from or, um, I think that the capacity to think through how they might be feeling without assuming how they might be feeling, if that makes sense, mm. is, is very, is key. Um, and I think um, one of the things I, you know, I think Zoom's been a great, you know, it's been a great opener of many things, including being able to do this with such ease. Hmm. but I think you can feel what's going on in a room if you breathe and pause and 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 listen and sometimes even in silences you can feel in a room how people are feeling you know that there's a there's the people describe the uncomfortable silence it exists
0: Hmm.
1: but you have to be very very attentive
0: yeah yeah so true and and uh, brought up as i was in a sort of mixture you talked about jewish and catholicism in the sort of mix mine was uh sort of uh church of england and quaker uh sort of family of four generations of quakers and that they would have a meeting house room with no vicar or whatever just everybody there in a sort of circle uh and then someone would be moved by what they feeling is the the mood of the room you know what's going on and so you had to had to pick that up. And that's where I think Nancy Klein in her work um, in a Quaker school then took it on to to really the skill of really getting people to think for themselves without being interrupted, Uh, beautifully put. And on from that one is one so closely linked to that, but also very linked to your CBE. It's it's cultural intelligence, um, a mixture of how you collaborate with others, but also diversity, equality, and inclusion what would be your top tip on cultural intelligence and, and those aspects?
1: Well, I, I think I, I would use the curious word in this context, which is, you know, and, and back to that point that I made about to be interesting, you need to be interested. And, and actually, you know, people talk about diversity and inclusion and actually, it's being curious about understanding the whole person and sometimes people confuse that with prying, you know you know asking questions about people's lives you know people people will generally settle at the level at which they're prepared to answer questions or or be open about who they are and what they are but they're they're going to be more open about who they are and what they are if you are so I think that, look, there's, there's no sort of magic bullet on this, but I think being curious, being open about yourself and being open about what you don't know. So, you know, I, I think, um, and I do think that forgiveness comes into all of this because we will make missteps. If we're being curious, there will be missteps in terms of, we might ask the wrong question, we might frame it in the wrong way. But I think if you can set up the conditions for people to understand that you care about who they are and what they stand for, and and this is less about, you know, am I black, am I white, am I Jewish, am I Catholic, and more about what makes me tick. And actually from that, those other things might flow, as, as has happened in this conversation. You've learned quite a lot about me and my background and who I am and not just what you see I mean you know and 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 all of those things are that wonderful blend of 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 what makes us all different and I think we need to spend time understanding understanding what we have in that's different as much as we do as what we have in common
0: that's beautifully put thank you Um, it all resonates and I'm sure will do to people listening Uh, and and with that take us on next to our Q, resilience question against adversity. Although you haven't and and won't be talking about some of the personal challenges that you've had, I'm sure that has given you uh, the qualities of coping with adversity and resilience. And what would be your top tip on resilience that's worked for you but might be useful to others?
1: So... um the what one thing I would say is you can't change what's happened
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 whether this is in a kind of professional context or whether it's in a personal context, I think the thing that helps me be resilient most is is just knowing that that is a fact and and therefore knowing that there is little point you learn from looking back yeah when I say there's no point looking back there is to learn but there's no point looking back and regretting and hope wishing that it were different because it it is whatever the situation it is so the way in which I've always I think approached things and luckily for me and I recognize I am fortunate in this is that I am I wouldn't describe myself as a sort of a glass half full Pollyanna-ish person, but I am definitely somebody who looks for the positive out of the negative. And it has served me incredibly well because it means that, and in fact, the more disastrous the situation in some ways, um, I, I think I've learned the calmer I've become. You know, So when bad things happen, I I. funny enough that the kids would probably my children would probably say to you, you know, she'll have a hissy fit about something that's like, you know, irrelevant and then something really serious happens and she's, you know, incredibly calm and whatever else. And and I think and I think that is because um, I have this view that I can't change what's happened, but I can deal with what happens going forward.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and then. Uh, so the, uh, I, I love that. And I, I captured all those points. BQ, uh, your brand, your reputation, your image, your impact. We can talk about organizations, which you had to help the brand of KPMG, which which became extremely good. Though at times it, the brand got attacked on various things and it, it slipped, it's, its crown fell a bit. It was, you know, I mean, one of the best places to work and then it wasn't so good and so on. But that, that's one thing of, of, its, of itself. But uh, I'm interested in, You know, your brand, your reputation, your image, the impact you make, it's what people say about you, Melanie, when you're not in the room. So, you know, you're now in a business where you do things like 360. What have you found the value of things like 360, where you really get the honest opinion from a variety of people or their perspective? It might not be the truth, it may not be fact, but it's how they feel about you or the leaders you coach. What's, What's your view on brand and 360?
1: so um i'm i think the the biggest learning i had from 360 was about listening
2: mm.
1: and um because sometimes the things that people value in you can equally be things that they find more difficult to handle so i'm quite a passionate kind of you know get on with things quite driven person and through 360 what I discovered was that people loved that and they loved working with that but at times they felt that, that that their voices weren't necessarily always all being heard and that did that wasn't that I wasn't listening to anybody but it was was I list you know could I listen to could I listen a bit more and the answer is of course I could you always can right and so yeah I'm a huge fan of i think 360 handled in the right way you know can be hugely valuable um and so i I hope that my brand is still that i'm passionate and you know i i do things that i believe in Um, um i think that uh i think if if my brand is that i help and 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 support and people would would be another aspect that Mm. I would you know that that's what I would like to think that that I'm doing and I think the last thing is that I'm open to continuous learning and being curious Mm. um I think I think those would be the things
0: brilliant no thank you for that and then the the last one around the inspiring leadership compass is that of legacy and stewardship and leaving things better than you found them Um, what would be your your tip on leaving a legacy in your lifetime uh, rather than in your lunchtime, as my Sergeant Major would tease me that I was a, a, a legend in my own lunchtime.
1: Well, I don't think you can have artificial legacies, if that makes sense. You okay. know, I, I think uh, uh, we haven't used that word authentic, but, you know, I, I think whatever you you think your legacy is, it needs to be authentic and 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 actually, if if the legacy were kind of the the big the big picture legacy, it would be that people thought I had helped make a difference to the, to them and or to some particular cause. But then you you know you take it down to a different level. So do I want to feel like I've made a difference to the course of research into women's cancers? You know that's a pretty big, big ambition. And, and look, I'm not even a researcher, and I, I'm just one of the people that might help contribute to all of that. So, um, but, but I, think, I think whatever your legacy is, it has to come from the heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's brilliant. And we're now just on to the last um, three questions. Um, executive teams, then your favorite book, and, and then your top tip. Um, you, you've had a lifetime of working with different executive teams, forming them, advising them, working with them. You've seen good ones, you've seen bad ones. What's your top tip for when, looking back at what you've been at, when you've sometimes come across toxic teams that need to become high-performing teams, what have you seen work most in, in turning that toxicity around?
1: Well, first of all, not to make assumptions about people in the team. Hmm. You know, when you, when you take over a team or you're... Sort of, particularly, yeah, when you've taken over a team and then, you know, maybe you, you work to make change or whatever else... Uh, I think very often, particularly around toxic teams, as you the, to use your phrase, there is assumption that everybody is, must be bad in that team. Or, and, and I think I think not forgetting that at the point at which you are kind of taking responsibility, that you spend enough time understanding each of the individuals that you have. And what maybe has driven the team to behave the way that it does? Because my experience, I suppose, has been that, um, of course you have to make a team work, uh, for a team to be effective, it needs to be able to work together. But singling out particular individuals as being the root cause of, often it's a whole combination of different factors that are not necessarily self-evident.
0: Yeah, that's spot on thank you and then um, a book by uh one of your former coaches uh i think is the one you're going to share will you just say which the book is
1: well well actually i was thinking about this can i
0: have two is that okay you you can have two
1: so um the first is um a former coach of mine who um wrote a book called embodied leadership and um it's it's quite a cerebral book and and you know it's it's not on the top 10 list you've, you've named some fantastic books but uh, it, it helped me at a particular point in time which was to really understand that it, leadership is not just about how you show up personality wise it's everything from your physicality to and your presence to um your ability to listen and the power to listen all of uh, many of the themes that we picked up on here and, and and i suppose one of the reasons i suppose it particularly resonated was because um, it talks about physicality and what you don't know on this is that and you know jonathan because we physically met but but your your viewers and listeners won't is that i'm five foot uh, and if you've ever seen the studies on kind of leadership uh, and leaders I do not fit a stereotype for a leader which is uh, not only male still too much but also tall mm. <laughs> you know the average height I think of a fortune 500 CEO is something like 5'11 and a half and I'm well short of that five foot even with my very very natty heels on and <laughs> um, And so what I learned uh, for all the little people out there is that your your size is a function of how you physically show up as much as as how physically tall you are.
0: Yeah, that's very good. Thank you for that. And with my wife, who's petite as well and and a similar size, I I really value that. And uh, she she packs a punch like you do, too. Not physically, I quickly add just what the contribution she makes to society and charities. Um, What was the other book?
1: Well, I just it's one that I I've, I've recently read, which um is a book by John Amici,
2: no.
1: who, uh, which is called Promises of Giants, um and, uh John uh is himself a, a psychologist and um he 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 has is at the other end of the spectrum. He's a former NBA basketball player as well, and um it's a, it's a book about the shadow we cast as leaders and uh, focuses on, um, I suppose, how we can be more inclusive leaders.
0: Mm, Very good, I like that one. Great, so we're now on to the the two-minute top tip, leadership top tip. So Melanie, would you once again introduce yourself and then share with them your two-minute top tip and why that's so relevant to you? And then we'll finish at that stage.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Hi, I'm Melanie Richards, and I'm the former deputy chair of KPMG in the UK, and now sit on the board of Morgan Stanley International as a non-executive. Um, I'm also on the boards of the Eve Appeal, which is a charity that uh, raises an awareness and um, funds research into the early detection and prediction of gynaecological cancers. Gosh, that was a mouthful. Uh, the National Theatre and the Invictus Games. Uh, and my top tip, well, it's to calibrate, don't catastrophize you know, those moments where you extrapolate out to the worst ever scenario, um, bring yourself back and consider what the real rational reasons for what's happened has happened and what you can do about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. Well, look, Melanie, thank you very much for for being on the Inspiring Leadership Series. Uh, great wisdom and experience, and I'm sure people will still continue very much to value your advisory capacity and, and helping them as they struggle with the challenges in our third year of, of the pandemic, or the endemic, as I think we should call it. Uh, but thank you very much for being on the series.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.
0: So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks, And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be Good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.